Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And hello, Team Unscrubbed. Welcome home. I hope everyone is having a great week. The weather here in Cleveland has been perfect, like 50s to 70s and perfect, and has brought me so much joy. So this week on Unscrubbed, I am thrilled to have Dr. Jake Lauer, who is the current second-year MIGS fellow at Columbia and who also has his master's in public health from Johns Hopkins University. You know, I recently asked you guys, what do you want to hear on this podcast? And a lot of you are craving discussions around work transitions, transitions from residency to fellowship into staff and vice versa. Now, Jake has a really unique journey, and then he went into an academic practice directly after he completed his OBG in residency. And then after a few years, he decided that he wanted to go back and complete a MIGS fellowship. So he has incredible insight on all of the things surrounding transitions. He also recently co-authored a very intriguing perspective piece in JMIG about the future of the gynecologic surgeon, rationale and steps towards subspecialization of complex gynecologic surgery. So in this first episode of his two-part interview, we are going to focus in on his transitions from residency to attendinghood and then back to his current fellowship. And we are going to discuss what he found challenging and what surprises that he found along the way. And then you guys can tune in next week to hear about his thought-provoking perspective piece. We hope you enjoy. I want to welcome Dr. Jake Lauer to Unscrub. Jake, it is so fantastic to see you. Uh, great to see you. I miss you. Uh, miss seeing your face, missing you in person. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having me join. Absolutely. I've been wanting you on our show for so long. Yeah, you're exactly right. I miss your face too. We, we go way back to Madison. Yeah, the University of Wisconsin. We survived some uh, some cold tundra winters there. I was just thinking the same thing, that polar vortex, when it got to like minus 130, <laughs> and we weren't even allowed outside, but you and I went to the coffee shop. We went to the coffee shop. We drank our soul's content of lattes and then trudged home. Yeah, that was a cold winter. So now you're in New York, I am in Cleveland, and it feels like summer every day. <laughs> Well, Cleveland's different than I expected. I know. I know. I'm actually a lot more south than I thought I was. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. Yeah. The New, the New York winters have been um, pleasantly mild, in my opinion. Very different than Madison, but good. But good. All right. I'm going to jump into this with you, friend. So I want to talk to you a little bit about transitions. Transitions okay. meaning training transitions. You have kind of a unique journey to where you are right now. So right now you're at Columbia in your second year of your MIGS fellowship. Right. And, and you did kind of a non-conventional route, which I love about you. So you trained in Oklahoma for your residency, That's right? That's correct, yep. Yeah, and then your first job was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Right. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that transition felt like from residency to attendinghood? And were there any surprises, anything that um, that you weren't expecting when you made that transition? Yeah, yeah, I, I did residency at the University of Oklahoma and um, yeah, it was kind of an atypical path, but I, I, I mean, the short story is that like in residency, I considered doing an ONC fellowship. So I had done a little bit of ONC research and, and 
talked about that. But then as kind of the towards the end of my residency, I felt like that wasn't the best move for me and wanted to explore some other career paths. So I, I enjoyed teaching, I enjoyed academics, and so I took a position as um, a, an academic specialist or generalist at the University of Wisconsin. Um, right out of right out of residency, and you know, honestly, like I look back on back on it, and it was it was a really good first step in my career. Um, there were there were a lot of benefits to it. I think the the like really good aspects about that for me. One was that it was a really supportive environment to be like a new faculty member. Um, I had partners who um, were just like great mentors, like very willing to join me in the operating room, answer my questions, like help me deal with like situations that seemed like more complex or uncertain. Um, And I think especially as a new attending, that's huge just to have people who are willing to spend time helping you and mentoring you. I also really benefited just from the academic environment of having people from different specialties and different conferences. I mean, I'm I'm like a legit nerd at heart. Um, and so I loved like being at a university with like research conferences and like different lectures to go to. And I think that that did a lot to just kind of like spur my, my academic career. But yeah, I mean, I, I probably experienced most of the you know, typical challenges that people have right out of training and that like you have just like uncertainty about your skill set and you're you're constantly trying to, you know, do the right thing by patience, but also like challenge yourself in ways and like learn new things. Um, And I think it took, um, you know, now when I like talk with residents who are coming out of training, I always tell them like, I think it's going to take you about two to three years to find your sweet spot. You know, it it takes about two to three years to start to feel like comfortable and like you have rhythms um, to where you're not just like stressing about everything all the time. Um, But I think that's normal. At least it was normal for me. Absolutely. Like those first two or three years out, I feel like the learning curve is straight up, right? Yeah. It's like that first time you're like actually on your own and making your own decisions. And even though you've done it a lot in residency, like I remember the first time I made the call from clinic to bring someone to the operating room, I was like, oh my Lord, is this the right thing? Mm -hmm. Right? It's just, it's hard not to have that validation from, from your attending right behind you. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I encourage people, like one of the things I encourage our trainees to ask when they're like interviewing for jobs is to, to ask like, what kind of on-ramping will you have for me? Like what, what mechanisms will you have set up in place to get me onboarded as a new provider? Because I, I think those decisions, like taking somebody to the operating room that knowing that you have like a, like backup or that you have people to like co-scrub with you if you want, like making sure those things are in place helps make that a little less terrifying, but nonetheless, it's terrifying. I mean, if you're not terrified a little bit, then then I then I think that might be a little odd, to be honest, right? Yeah, that's true. There's like a healthy fear. There's there's a healthy fear there. Yeah, no, totally. And when you bring this up, you know, it's really interesting. I love that question when you interview for anywhere. Like, what kind of onboarding experience do you offer? You know, I think uh, I was just speaking with somebody out in California yesterday about surgical coaching options, and he was saying that for their new faculty, they are supposed to co-scrub for their first three cases. And mm. that's so interesting. Like, how did three cases become, you know, the minimum of co-scrubbing? Or, like, how are those numbers actually, you know, chosen or justified? It's just an interesting, mm. I think, detail that a lot of different institutions institutions have. And I think that's actually a, a really unique place that surgical coaching can actually really mm-hmm. benefit new physicians that are onboarding. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, in my first position, I, if I remember right, I had another surgeon there for my first 10 majors. And, you know, even, even after that, like, I, I mean, you, when, when I was in Madison, you and I did a couple of cases together. And, and part of that is just, I think it's, it's good and healthy for us as like professionals and surgeons to, to sometimes tackle, especially challenging cases with other surgeons or surgeons who have like a more advanced skill set or a different skill set than us. And, um, I've, I find those things, those collaborations to be really helpful. Like I'm always like seeing how people do things and I'm like, Oh, I, I wouldn't have done it like that, but I'm going to use that. And I, I think it's a strange thing in medicine that we we graduate people from training, we give them a license, we give them privileges, and then we're just kind of like, all right, like you're set for life. Um, I mean, it, it, just, it it's honestly, I think, just kind of like naive for us to think that that's the best way to care for patients is to just like be done with training and then like practice without any sort of kind of mentorship or guidance through our careers. It's so true. And that's like the culture, right? Like the culture is very much that like once you graduate, you should be able to do all of these things by yourself. And it's almost like if you co-scrub or sometimes if you bring in somebody else, it's almost a sign of weakness. And that should not at mm-hmm. all be the mentality, right? That's you being very thoughtful about about your limitations and, and where you need to improve. Right. Yeah. And you, I mean, you say the word culture and I think that it's the nail on the head. Cause I think that when you're like looking for a job, it's really important to know kind of the culture of the practice. Like, you know, if you are in a practice um, that the the culture is on billing, um, it's not, you know, to have another attending, like take time away from their clinic and their OR to scrub with you, that's not best for the bottom line. But oftentimes that is what's best both for patients and for just mentorship in long-term careers. And so I think kind of understanding the culture where you're going and is this a culture that's going to like really value my like growth as a, as a, professional and as a surgeon, that's really telling. 100%. I could not agree more. And when I think back about my first year out, uh, Ted Lee, Dr. Ted Lee, who I did my fellowship with, always told me to really load the boat for those more complex cases, right? Like it's much better to have people on backup or standby versus those like urgent, oh crap, call-ins. And so one way that I think that I battled some of those more complex cases, because when you get out as a, as a MIGS attending, you're going to be sent all the hardest of the hard cases, right? People are going to be right. pushing you and challenging you. So The mercenary surgeon. That is what I'm saying, right? And so it's not like people yeah. are like, we'll start with the easy ones. I'm like, easy one, right. like the 24-week you instead of the 30-week you. <laughs> it's like, holy yeah. cow. And so I think um, that's one thing that I really took home with me is that loading the boat, having the right people on on backup. And that way, if you need them, they're there. If you don't need them, mm-hmm. fantastic. But then it's not like an urgent 3 p.m. issue where you look like you're you know, calling people in urgently. So that's one thing that I've yeah. taken home with me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good tip. <clears throat> now, you mentioned how UW-Madison was really good at kind of that mentorship and sponsorship role for you. And I agree, they had an amazing mentorship set up there, right? Like, I, I feel like that's one place that yeah. I've been that they really had that all built right in right from the get-go about building your team and having a sustainable long-term men- me- like mentor kind of group mm-hmm. that was really helpful. Can you talk to me a little bit about your mentors? Like, can you talk to me a little bit about, like, do you only have one mentor? Do you have multiple mentors? How do you, how have you decided in your career who and where to get your mentors from? Yeah, I mean, I feel like they happen, like, 
I mean, lots of lots of places have formal mentorship programs, um, especially if you're in like a, a tenure type track, like you're going to have some sort of like formal oversight. But I mean, my ex- my experience, which is like relatively short, has been that I think like the most valuable mentorships most of the time happen just organically. You know, they're like born out of just like seeing somebody in the way that they're career trajectory has happened and then and then benefiting from that experience and so I've had you know some of some of my good mentors like I still there's a, a couple of mentors um, that I still keep in touch with from residency so um, you know with like kind of like different career paths like Lisa Landrum was an oncologist who's now the program director in Oklahoma City and she's just like one of these like wonderful human beings who like she's a great educator and a great surgeon and so um i still keep in touch with her from from time to time and and then from my you know from my time in madison like i would definitely consider you as a mentor um there's some other like colleagues there um that were that were really key and and for me like a lot of those mentors were my peers right like people in my group who might have been maybe even just a few years ahead of me but being able to tap into those resources of like your colleagues and to just like learn from their experience. Um, you can't under undervalue that, right? Like um, everybody's kind of coming to the table with something to offer, even if they're just a little bit ahead of you. So really looking at your needs and your goals, which may flex over time, right? And then finding people who are really prolific in that area. I love that. And I think that's also interesting that you still have some pretty great mentors from Oklahoma and from Madison. And I know you and I are still close. And I think part of the benefit of this virtual world is that you can maintain these contacts fairly easily, even though you're not in the same city. So really broadening your eyes um, and looking right like nationwide at different people who are representing what what you think is, is important and valuable and reaching out to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like those this last year, I think, at least for me, has revealed to me like just the value of like in-person connection. I mean, we've had several conferences um, via virtual platforms. And I mean, while they're good, like it just you lose that connection with other professionals. And um, I mean, maybe everybody else isn't like as needy as I am, but I just really value those. You know, I, I love like getting to connect with people at conferences and cross paths with people who I haven't seen from years. And I think there's a kind of like professional energy that gets born out of that, that is good for all of us, um, you know? And so I, I, for one, am like anxious for the return. I know we all are on some level, but return of those in-person meetings. My gosh, I know. I miss your face. I just want to squeeze it and get coffee and wine with you so bad. But you're right. Like every time I fly home from a meeting, I'm like all jazzed up and pumped, right? Like every time I come from a meeting, I've got like my moleskin out. I'm like making all these research ideas and all these, right? My brain gets so creative. And although virtual can be powerful in its own way, it doesn't have that same energy, right? It's like looking at a screen doesn't feel exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, you can't just like, uh, you you have to value too just like the time outside of like the lecture hall, right? Just like time tossing around ideas and hearing what people are doing. And I think there's a lot of inspiration and innovation that gets born out of those things. So true. You know, I was post-grad, uh, like the SGS post-grad course that was this past December. I was a course director for yeah. that. And I was trying to brainstorm ways to have this like coffee talk like try to find that energy, I could not figure it out. I was like, we'll put everyone in a room and we'll just like chat, but it's like, <laughs> it's just not, I don't know. I don't know how to do right. it. 
I know it's we we tried to replace it, but um, if if nothing else, maybe it will like make us value those the time that we have at those conferences even more. You know, for sure. Okay, I want to ask. I want to bring up a story. I don't know why I love this story so much, but <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> no, I have so many I'm stories. Brace, I'm just- <laughs> I have so many stories of us with like the laser and the lab, but um, the story I love is the story of, like when you first started at uh, in Madison and you're a runner and I'm a runner, yeah, yeah. right? And you were looking yeah. for someone to to like give you ideas about running trails and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Madison's like a a great place like for outdoor time, but um, yeah, I think we. I think that was like one of our first connection points was like, I was just kind of trying to figure out like, how, how do I access good trails and um, where do I go? And I think at that time I was, I've, now I think like for what reason was I doing this? But at, at the time I was like training for triathlons. And so um, I think I was like looking for the advice on like where to do that in Madison. And that's one of your passions too, which was a fun, yeah. fun point for us to share. But then I couldn't walk. Remember I had foot drop? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> And remember how you were like, so like that's the running connection? Because I had just got foot trot from that myomectomy case. And so I couldn't yeah. actually, I'd like steppage gate. You remember that? Yeah, I do. And then I, I was I was unsure of like why you had the foot drop. And then you explained it to me. And that's when I realized that you actually are crazy. <laughs> I was like, in a, in I swear I could Totally endearing way. Thank you. Thank you. I take that to heart. Okay, next, I want to hear about how did you decide to go back and do a fellowship? That's a really bold and courageous move, right? So how did you make that decision? What pushed you to go back and reapply for a MIGS fellowship? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was like, it was kind of a fun journey. I mean, when I finished residency, kind of like towards the tail end of my residency, there was a surgeon who came and did a grand rounds at uh, my residency program. I'm blanking on her name, but you'll know she's out at um, Kaiser in California. Um, She's done some of the like uh, panels and presentations about like the the Kaiser pathways for like uh, differentiating MIGs. Anyway, she she came and um, lectured at our residency program, and I that was kind of like one of my first introductions to really like understand more about um, MIGs and the fellowship. So when I finished residency, it was kind of in my head like, well, that that might be something I would pursue someday. You know, let's just kind of like see. And then I you know I got into my first job, and for a lot of reasons, I really liked it. It was a it was a good fit. Um, I just had like great staff, great colleagues, great patients. It was, a, it was a good situation. I think kind of the a couple of things compelled me to to come do a fellowship. But one of those was just like I just realized that I I really enjoyed GYN surgery. Like those that was the thing that like I looked forward to the most. Um, but I also just I wanted to be an expert at it. I wanted to do kind of like innovative challenging things. I I wanted to kind of be a part of like a a profession that would really challenge me and push me in that. And, you know, the nature of doing that in a, in a general OBGYN practice is just challenging, right? Like obstetrical patients, you know, they, they take appointment times and you have time on labor and delivery. And so just the amount of time that you can like devote to specific to GYN surgery is more limited. So I started realizing just some of the logistical challenges that would ha- that would 
be presented if I tried to just like grow my like GYN surgery skills and surgical practice while continuing to like practice obstetrics. And, you know, I, I think the other, the other big part of it for me was just wanting to have a career in academic medicine and to have, you know, specific research areas and areas of expertise that I could teach on and that I could mentor people in. And um, I think that just by nature of being a specialist or a subspecialist, you you have more opportunities for that because you have a more specific area of knowledge that you're you're able to share. And so those kinds of things were were in my mind. And, you know, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I think at some point when I met you in Madison, I was just like, so I just, can we just have coffee and you can just tell me like what it, like, what do you do? <laughs> like, um, and, and I think I wanted to understand, like, how do I myself as like a general OBGYN, how do I like work well with you? And I think that was a, a good um, introduction to kind of like the, the field of MIGs and, and kind of like more complex GYN surgery. And it, it, helped, it helped me kind of parse out that that was something that I wanted to do, um, getting to see what your practice and um, field was like at that point. I love it. And I think you bring up a really, really amazing point in that uh, academic specialists or the general OBGYNs, they are so crucial to the entire mix of all of this, right? And so when we met, we were really talking about like, how does MIGS augment what is what is already so exquisitely important that the general OBGYNs do, right? So we really are yeah. looking to collaborate and just be an extension, not at all replace. Like, uh, I think that's a really important thing that you brought up and like their role is so incredibly crucial for patient care. Yeah, I, I mean, I think my my perspective and hopefully this like comes out when I talk with people is that, you know, I'm, I'm not one of, my perspective is not that like, you know, everybody in OBGYN should be a subspecialist. Like I... I see tremendous value in the role of like general OBGYNs in multiple settings, not not just in like small communities, but in academic centers and um, big hospital systems. But I, I think that like one of my hopes is I want to see our our field kind of across the spectrum function more as a collaborative team where we realize the value that each specialist or subspecialist brings to the table um, and that we find ways to work together better in the best interest of our patients. Like, uh, hot take, but like, I think that there are things that general OBGYNs will do better than fellowship-trained MIGS people or fellowship-trained maternal-fetal medicine people and and, and vice versa, you know? So I, I think it's important that we see value and, and promote our colleagues who are in those other specialty and subspecialty roles. Very nicely put. I agree. And, you know, at Cleveland Clinic, we have the only tracked residency program in the country. And so a lot of people think that we're just developing subspecialists and we're not. A lot of our graduates actually go out to be um, specialists in general OBGYN. And to your point, I think general OBGYNs have a lot, a lot of a lot more skill than us in certain areas. And I think our track residency just really helps promote even those niches within general OBGYN that that people can specialize in. You know, our field is so broad, which we will get into with your amazing perspective piece that there's so much room to be niched, even if you don't fellowship. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I love the idea of resident tracking. You know, it's something that just in my own research, I've like, I've read a lot about and I see a lot of value in. I I think that there are things that are specific to being a general OBGYN provider that could be incorporated into, into tracking that currently get missed in the 
you know, kind of specialty focused training programs. And that was something I experienced. You know, I, I thought my residency program um, did an overall good job of training me to be a general OBGYN and preparing me for fellowship. But that being said, there were there were definitely things that when I got into practice, I was like, oh, I don't I don't know what to do with this or I don't know how to manage this. And uh, I think it would be nice to really focus on preparing our residents for the work that they are going to do after training. And and General OBGYN has some things that are specific to it that I, I think could be good skill sets for them. Awesome. Okay, friend, let's jump into your next transition point, going from attending Hood back into fellowship. How did that feel? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, it's funny because that was like, to me, that didn't seem like a big deal. Like, I mean, I, it was something I thought about, but definitely on the interview trail and like in conversations with people, that was like always the thing everyone wanted to talk about. Like, so what's it going to be like for you to go from a, being a practicing provider to like a fellow? And, um, you know, there's there's definitely like pros and cons to it. But I guess some, some of my perspective is that I think for me, it was important to do like a little bit of self-reflection and know that like, I felt confident that I could do it and that like that I would thrive in it. Part of that for me was just like being honest about like my own willingness to like be taught. Um, I, I mean, just to put it frankly, you know, I, I think it is true that like once you like get out into practice, you're kind of like used to making your own decisions and um, to go back into the role of, of a learner um, and do things the way other people want to do them, like that can be really challenging. But I think that I did like position myself even during my years of practice to be in like a place of constant learning. Like I went to a number of conferences, like I scrubbed surgeries with other surgeons. I So being in like a place of learning wasn't like whiplash, if that makes sense. Like it, you know, it felt normal for me to like continue to be in like a, a learning role on some level. So for me, that was very doable. And some of it, I think for a lot of people just comes down to like a lifestyle and logistics issue, you know, like you get planted in a place, you have the income that comes with full-time practice. It's It can be challenging, like depending on your, your family or lifestyle circumstances, like to make that transition. For me, that was pretty doable. Uh, and so it, it felt like a an easy decision to make uh, in in that regard. I, honestly, one of the harder parts of it for me was to to leave my practice. You know, like I like I said, I I don't I didn't leave I did not leave my practice and pursue fellowship out of any sort of like dissatisfaction with like my situation. Like I had my nursing staff was world class. I had fantastic colleagues. My patients were wonderful. So that was like, that was like kind of an emotional toll, right? Like it was a hard situation to leave, to, to choose to do something else. And that won't be everybody's situation, but those transitions are always hard. You know, even if they're worth it, even if they're valuable, like those, those transitions are hard. I know, I remember, cause we both left at the same time. And I remember distinctly yeah. sitting with you and just talking about that. Yeah, transitions are hard. And sometimes you can't think about the logistics of the transition because that can be really overwhelming. But thinking about like mm -hmm. the end goal of the transition and that can sometimes feel a little bit better. I don't know. That's kind of the way I look right. at things. Yeah, I, I think I like it helped me to just kind of like frame it positively, you know, to to look at it and think, not to think like, oh, like I'm leaving this and going into something, but to look back on it, man, that was, I'm really thankful for that. Like, I'm really thankful to have had those, you know, almost four years um, in my first 
position because I grew so much and I got to meet some really fantastic people and I developed relationships that are going to last a really long time. And like, I'm really thankful for that. So it kind of helped me to like look back on it really positively and see it as something like valuable that added to my life and career instead of something that I just lost. Yes. You're so inspiring. Do you meditate and journal? <laughs> I think you do. Do you do those things? <laughs> on, on the weekends. <laughs> You're so wise beyond your years. What the heck? Oh my gosh, you're so kind. <laughs> um, speaking of positive things about Madison, Laurel Rice, can we just bring her name up really quick? Is she not a force <laughs> of God? <laughs> she is a force to be reckoned with. Um, yeah, we, we both had the good fortune of getting to work for Laurel Rice. And yeah, she was uh, just a great advocate. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I look at and like I look back on my my time at UW-Madison and Laurel Rice specifically is that I loved that she saw the value in like helping people excel, even if it didn't benefit her directly. And I guess like what I mean by that is that when I, when you know, when I told Laurel that I was going to apply for fellowship and leave my position, she became just like one of my biggest advocates, you know? And um, which if you're, you know, a chair of a department, like losing faculty and having to replace those faculty, that creates challenges for you. But um, I just really appreciated that she, you know, she saw like long-term value in that for my career. She was very excited for me. And that's like an energy that I definitely want to channel into my future career, you know, to really like, of course, like losing colleagues, losing people that work for you is always hard, but like really being like an advocate for people um, as they pursue their own goals and interests, I think is very redeeming as a, and, and probably rewarding, I, I think, to see the role you've played in people's careers. She's been a great advocate. I, I completely agree. You know, when I think about leaders who I want to exemplify, right? Like things that have felt really good in my past, she has been so high on my list. She has taught me so much about really what, how, I mean, how a good leader leads and how they, just like you said, pick out the best out of the people they're working with. And that really helps raise them up. And I think about how she's taught me how to hire everything out that, that you don't want to do, right? She's like, she always says, if I could hire <laughs> right. someone to, to wipe my bottom, then I would. I I actually, I think about that on a daily basis. I just love her. She doesn't say bottom, obviously. <laughs> yeah, she's, I, I also um, always felt very humbled by watching her. Are you on Strava? The, like, yes. Uh, oh my God. Okay. That woman can bike. Oh my gosh. She gets, she's like posting her Strava rides at 5 a.m. And I'm like, barely out of bed with coffee. Um, I've always been humbled by her energy. I know. I just I just love her so much. I just think about, yeah, all the things. I think about <laughs> uh, like the Ted's hose in, in uh, Grand Rounds, right? She always puts on her knee highs in the middle of Grand Rounds, right? <laughs> I think I may have to edit that out, but that's so badass. <laughs> the, the Ted hose and the power scarf. That's like the Laurel Rice combo. I love it. I, I, I just adore her. I know my birthday was this week and I got an XOXO, XOXO, XO birthday cake. Oh my gosh. I did. <laughs> love her. <laughs> so many XOs. So many XOs. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next week for part two of Jake's interview, where he will dive into his JMIG perspective piece about the future of the gynecologic surgeon. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.